This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, I hope everybody is doing well today. Daphna, how are you feeling? I'm doing great, but I never get to ask you how you're feeling. I am doing good. You know, I'm like a, a car with on fuel reserve. I don't know if you know <laughs> if you've had that experience. I'm seeing the miles tr- tricking down, and I'm like, I need to get to a gas station soon. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can uh, you can uh, guess that I'm I'm the type that drives pretty close to empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, much like uh, my cell phone battery. And it's and it's a bit like me as well, right? It's always trying to find out how low can I go before I really, really need to stop. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> anyway. true. That probably resonates with a lot of people. Uh huh. <laughs> um, well, you know, um, before we begin this episode of Journal Club, I mean, I wanted to uh, give uh, a shout out to uh, Diana Montoya Williams, who was Dr. Diana Montoya Williams, who was with us last week. Um, I think it was a great episode and, and there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about today that are probably Mm -hmm. going to resonate a little bit between these two episodes. So, um, thanks to her again for, uh, being on and thank you to everybody who is helping growing the podcast community. Uh, we're getting, um, more and more demands and, and we're hoping to grow the podcast in different ways we can talk about, uh, in the future. But for now, um, should we tease who our next guest will be? Because I think it was a pretty big deal for us to have that person on. Sure. Um, Let's do so it. Next week, um, September 12th, we'll release an episode, which is an interview that we uh, that we recorded actually yesterday with Eric Jensen, Dr. Eric Jensen from CHOP, uh, where we talk about a lot of stuff ranging from um, BPD to research methodology and all that stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think you guys are going to enjoy that episode. Yeah, I think people learn a lot. I learned a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I could, I, I'm, I'm like re-listening to the episode and taking notes. <laughs> yeah, we might have uh, to have him back on to talk about some specifics, you know? Yeah. Okay, so there's a bunch of articles that we could discuss this week. And um, I guess, um, I don't know, where do you want to start, Daphna? Um, yeah, no, I think it's reasonable given uh, all of the... <laughs> excitement about COVID um, these last few weeks to start there. Okay. So we have two articles um, that were published. One of them in uh, JAMA, it's in the JAMA network open. And, um, and then the other one is published in, Oh, I just lost it. um, In JAMA PEDS. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk to them in combination because one of them is mostly an OB one. The other one is more for uh, neonatology, but so the first one is called JAMA Network is in JAMA Network Open. It's called Characteristics and Outcomes of Women with COVID-19 Giving Birth at US Academic Centers During the COVID-19 Pandemic. First author is Justin Chin. And um I forgot this group is from, let me see, um, from the University of California, mm-hmm. UC Irvine. So um, this was an interesting um article. Their objective was to examine the uh, characteristics and outcomes of uh, women who underwent childbirth with versus without COVID-19. And so uh, they looked at um, women aged 18 years or more who underwent childbirth from March 1st, 2020 and uh, February 28, uh, 2021. And this uh, this cohort spanned 499 U.S. academic medical centers yeah. or community affiliates. Yeah, that was, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> pretty, <laughs> I know. Um, their um, follow-up was limited to an in-hospital course and discharge destination. Childbirth obviously was defined based on uh, various codes. And the diagnosis of COVID-19 was identified uh, using um, uh, the ICD-10 codes as well. So um, the main outcomes and measures that they were looking at, the primary outcome was in-hospital mortality. Secondary outcomes included length of stay, in admission to the ICU, uh, requirement for mechanical ventilation, and discharge status. So briefly... Um, 
obviously, since, since this spanned almost 500 okay. centers, the number of women included in the study was large. So 869,079 women, um, 18, 000, 18 to 19,000 of which were diagnosed with COVID-19. So that's represented about 2.2% of the overall population. 850,000 and change did not have COVID-19. Um, the, the women were aged 18 to 30 years, which makes sense in considering mm -hmm. childbearing age in the United States. And, um, and the, the proportion of, of white women was 58.7% in the non-COVID cohort versus 43% in the COVID-19 mm -hmm. cohort. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, they didn't find any changes when it came to needing cesarean sections among uh, women with COVID-19. Um, however, women with diagnosis of COVID were more likely to have preterm birth, and that was 16.4% versus 11.5%. Uh, women giving birth with COVID-19 compared to women without it had significantly higher rates of ICU admissions, 5.2% versus 0.9%. Mm -hmm. That was quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, requiring respiratory intubation, mechanical ventilation, that was 1.5% versus 0.1%. And in hospital mortality um, were 24 women, which was 0.1% versus 71 in the, mm -hmm. in the control, which was less than 0.01%. Um, so that was that was very dramatic. Um, this this data obviously was done retrospectively, but it highlights a little bit some of the of the issues that have been discussed um, in the public space about um, mm -hmm. what should pregnant um, women do. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of anxiety about potentially vaccinating women who were pregnant. I think there was a recent article in the New England that that reassured. I think everybody saying that it was safe, and then you see that. Um, not only is it safe to get vaccinated, but I mean, there's significant risks yes. when it comes to um, the, the patient herself. Um, so that was very interesting. And then before we, we discuss this, I want to go into the second article, which was a bit more relevant to our practice. Uh, sorry, one second. And so this was another article, this time in JAMA Peds, called Maternal and Neonatal Morbidity and Mortality Among Pregnant Women with and Without COVID-19 Infection. And that was the inter-COVID multinational cohort study. Um, obviously, the list of authors is quite long, um, mm -hmm. but that was sort of based mostly the corresponding author is from, um, from uh, John Radcliffe Hospital in the UK. So this, um, this paper, not too unsimilarly from the other one, was to evaluate the risks associated with COVID-19 in pregnancy on this time both maternal and neonatal outcomes compared with non-infected concomitant pregnant individuals. Their uh, cohort spanned 43 institutions in 18 countries. So this time we're talking about an international, as we said in the title um, um, study, that's um, 43 institutions, 18 countries, and that ran from March to October 2020. And they continue to... Um, um, Consecutive non-infected uh, non women were concomitantly enrolled immediately after each infected woman was identified. So basically, they identified each woman with COVID-19 and then, and then enrolled control at the same time. Um, the primary outcome were indices of um, morbidity and mortality, um, maternal and neonatal perinatal. Um, and then there's like a lot of individual components of that that they've defined that we'll go, we'll go into. So... Um, Interestingly, I think if you look at the various um, outcome measures that they've looked at, everything seems pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, degree of preeclampsia, hypertension, health syndrome, and so on and so forth. You can look, and, and they're fairly standard. The one I want to spend some time on because it's a bit less straightforward is something that they've defined as the severe neonatal morbidity index. And that will become important in terms of the results. This uh, index um, included at least three of the following severe complications, and they were not minor. It included mm -hmm. BPD hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, sepsis, anemia requiring transfusion, a patent ductus arteriosus requiring treatment or surgery, intraventricular hemorrhage, and necrotizing enterocolitis or retinopathy of prematurity diagnosed before hospital discharge. So remember that this morbidity index, including at least three of the following. So, so if you had um, for this index to be positive, you had to have pre pretty significant um, mm -hmm. complications. So if we're looking at the results, um, there was a total of 706 pregnant women with COVID-19 
um, that were diagnosed and they were able to sort of do a one to two ratio for controls. So they had 1400 about pregnant women without COVID-19 that were enrolled. And so um, women with COVID-19 um, diagnosis, they were at a high risk of preeclampsia or eclampsia um, with a relative risk of 1.76. They were at a higher risk of severe infection they were at a higher risk of in intensive care unit admission. They were at a higher risk of maternal mortality. And, and then talking about more now the perinatal stuff, they were at a higher risk of preterm birth. The relative risk was 1.59. And they were at a high risk of medically indicated preterm birth, meaning that their status was probably um, compromised to the extent that the medical team decided to uh, deliver the patients prematurely. Uh, they were at a higher risk of severe neonatal morbidity index. This is sort of where we're going back to that index with a relative risk of 2.66 and severe perinatal morbidity and mortality index relative risk 2.14. Um, asymptomatic women with COVID-19 diagnosis remained at a higher risk only for maternal morbidity and preeclampsia. And among women who tested positive, um, 54 of their neonates. So that was about 13% tested positive for COVID-19 as well. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, I would like to um, refer the, the, the listeners to that table in the, in the paper table one, where you have all the different, um, all the different morbidities and mortalities that, that uh, are listed. And again, preeclampsia, eclampsia, 8.4% versus 4.4%. Infections, 3.6 versus 1.1%. Admission to the ICU, again, very impressive, 8.4% versus 1.6%. Maternal death, very similar to the mm -hmm. US cohort, 1.6 versus 0.1%. Preterm birth, 22% versus 13%. Medically indicated preterm, 18.8% versus pretty much 9%. And then this sort of severe perinatal morbidity and mortality index, 17% versus 8%. And the other one, the severe neonatal mor morbidity index, which, which is the other one that they've defined. So let me just clarify this. There's the severe mm -hmm. neonatal morbidity index, which is the one that we spoke about earlier on. That was 6.2% versus 2.3. And then they had something called the severe perinatal morbidity and mortality index, which basically includes any of the morbidity listed in the SNMI, the severe neonatal mort morbidity index, or intrauterine or neonatal death or neonatal ICU stay uh, beyond seven days. And that was 17% versus 8%. So very impressive stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and and it makes you makes you think, you know, I mean, the numbers objectively may, may not look impressive in comparison to COVID negative women. I think it's, it's shocking. And if it was a loved one, I mean, you, not want to place your um, your loved one in harm's way. I mean, you're thinking of all the things that could potentially go wrong when you're admitted to the ICU when you require mechanical mm -hmm. ventilation. That's frightening. So, um, yeah, what, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the percentages and and luckily, thankfully, both both studies were pretty congruent, right? They showed the same things. And so, I mean, for this, I mean, you talked about the percentages, but the relative risk admitted to ICU was five. Um, and then maternal death, uh, does the number sounds small, but the relative risk is 22. Um, and so that's not, I mean, that's not insignificant at all. And it certainly shows a much higher risk um, propensity for these pregnant women. And then, you know, obviously we care about the neonatal outcomes um, and so those were significantly different as as well. And mm -hmm. and something that, you know, doesn't even really trigger, for example, for the lay community, but uh, the differences in, in low birth weight um, was was also not insignificant. And we know that has long-term um, outcomes. And then certainly for moms, the development of preeclampsia, we know leads to preterm uh, morbidities. And for moms, long-term problems. So moms who have preeclampsia, Eclampsia um, are developing chronic hypertension as well, and so it just it just goes to show you there's so many things we don't understand about COVID yet, particularly in pregnancy. And this is really the first study we've seen that sh looked at kind of the fetal outcomes. Um, so I'm really glad that we have this, and I'm sure we're going to see more. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, the next iteration with the Delta variant will look worse. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, that, that's the one thing that's interesting, right? I mean, I think 
Um, there's a lot of, of, of uncertainty surrounding COVID. I think rightfully so. I think anybody that says we don't really know what the long-term mm -hmm. effects are of the, of the virus, they're, they're right. And then on the other hand, even people who are questioning the efficacy of the vaccine saying, oh, we don't know the long-term effects. It's like, okay, let's have that discussion even if you want. However, these studies are pointing something very interesting, which is the outcomes that these patients are exposed to. So for example, preterm birth, mm -hmm. uh, low, just low birth weight, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, we know what the long-term outcomes exactly. are, right? right? We spoke about that, like for example, in the last episode, like we know that every week of gestation decreases the rate of autism, right? And so, yes, the long-term outcomes, we can always speculate and this data will, uh, will thankfully come in. But at this time, Yes, the long-term effect we can sort of know because if your baby is born low birth weight preterm, that has long-term neurodevelopmental consequences. And I can tell you what those outcomes are. And that alone should help you in making a decision towards keeping your loved one safe. So interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think about um, pregnant people and the lengths they go to protect you know, that pregnancy. Um, and and this is a this is a big deal, unfortunately. Yeah. And then like you said, with the with the vaccines, it's really just weighing the risks, the risks we do know. We for sure know right. um uh with the risks of the vaccine versus these risks of um getting COVID while while pregnant. Yeah. So and, and um, ideally ideally I'm vaccinated, but ideally I wish I'd never was placed in a situation where I needed to get vaccinated for a disease, right? I mean, it's just right. a fact of life where now we have to deal with this, with this virus. And so, like you said, we have to, we have to adapt. And that's, I guess, the strength of the human races and the species is that we adapt. <laughs> um, yeah. And COVID I think was a good example of that. The one thing I, I was happy to see is really this impact on asymptomatic women, um, because that's the majority of women with COVID infections. Thankfully, unfortunately, we don't know which which person is going to be asymptomatic versus which person is going to be symptomatic. Um, so, so that's that's the clincher, right? We we have to protect everybody because we don't know who's going to get really sick. Um, and so far, we haven't been able to hammer down on on the data to to really outline who's at higher risk, other than they're they're pregnant. Um, but I was feeling thankful that the asymptomatic patients were not having at least these outcomes. I think there are still things we will learn, um, mm -hmm. but that made, that made me feel hopeful. Yeah, 100%. Okay, um, we have a lot of articles to go mm -hmm. through. Um, so, and we could talk about COVID and pregnancy and, and neonates <laughs> the for, for an, the whole episode. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious if, if we maybe, anyway, looking for maybe some guests that could, that could enlighten us on, on their studies and research. So we'll see about that. Anyway, what is the next paper you wanted to, uh, to go over, Daphna? So I thought we should do this one on um, timing of neonatal stoma closure, admittedly, mostly because we're dealing mm -hmm. with this in our own unit right now. We have a okay. special patient. Yeah, that's so, correct. Um, so we have this timing of neonatal stoma closure, a survey of health uh, professional perspectives and current uh, practice um, in the archives of disease. Um, the lead author, Jonathan Ducey, and this is a study out of the UK. So really, this is a, I mean, it's a survey study. Um, they wanted to look at not necessarily the optimal timing, but what is the perception of optimal timing um, for stoma closures? They used an online survey. They sent it to all um, 27 uh, neonatal surgical units in the UK um, to look at um, what were the individual responses about when is the, the right time looking at early uh, closure and quote unquote late uh, stoma closure. And we'll talk about that. So um, they had a total of 166 professionals across those surgical centers. Um, 52 were from 52% were from surgeons, 40% from neonatologists, 5% from specialist nurses. Um, and uh, what they did is the survey looked at kind of these three domains. So the clinical role, um, which we talked about, the current practice in the unit for timing of stoma closure, and then focused questions on um, what would make them potentially deviate or how they made those elections for um, when, their, when their preferred time was. 
So um, overall, I think they got a, a big a big segment of their population. So they got greater than two surgeons from uh, 24 out of 27 centers, so almost all centers, and greater than or equal to two neonatologists from 24 uh, out of 27 centers. So a lot of feedback. Um, and so they actually didn't truly define early or later closure, but they let um, people self-define for for themselves. So, the, so they actually didn't define early or late closure but they let the respondents choose for themselves. So they had 47% of respondents generally considered themselves proponents of quote-unquote early stoma closure, 28% of quote-unquote later stoma closure, and um, 25% were unsure. So I thought that was really interesting. Welcome to the club. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Very honest. Um, So they also... Uh, provided uh, four different scenarios um, looking at what would the timing be different depending on the baby. So I'll, I'll read those briefly and we've all experienced them. But the first scenario is a 26-weeker um, deteriorates clinically on the third day of life, found to have um, an isolated perforation of the distal small uh, bowel, um, and they have both a stoma and mucus fistula. The second scenario, preterm infant at 26 weeks gestation, clinical signs of neck at four weeks of age. The, the laparotomy confirms diffuse small bowel involvement, 50 centimeters of bowels resected, a stoma and mucus fistula are placed. Scenario three, a term infant born with signs of distal bowel obstruction and failure to pass meconia. A simple meconium ileus and a microcolon are found, a laparotomy, stoma, and mucus fistula are placed. The fourth scenario, a term infant is born with signs of proximal bowel obstruction, failure to pass meconium. They find a jejunal atresia and a stoma and mucus fistula at that time are placed in the mid-jejunum. So across the board, um, it looked like the most common um, time to closure was about six weeks. Uh, but there mm-hmm. was variability between scenarios, which makes sense. So um, certainly for the preterm infant, more respondents favored a longer time interval between stoma formation and closure. And most of this um, was related to the weight of the baby. So most people were targeting a specific weight. So surely if the baby um, required their first surgery very early in uh, their admission, then they would wait longer to to gain the targeted birth weight. And for most of the respondents, it looks like the targeted birth weight was about two kilos. Um, the median was two kilos and the mode was actually 2.5 kilos mm-hmm. um, as their predefined weight for surgery. And that was really across the board for all the scenarios. The other thing that uh, really looked like uh, would predispose to a later closure are things that produced inflammatory pathologies. So bowel perforations with significant peritonitis and neck uh, were considered to be justifications to extend the interval between uh, procedures to allow for uh, evolution of the gut sequela and abdominal quiescence. So letting that inflammatory response pass, uh, decrease of adhesions uh, pass so that babies had a more optimal surgical outcome. And then they really had some uh, qualitative uh, questions to look at what would support expediting stoma closure. Um, So things like growth failure, um, TPN dependence, so not being able to advance feeds, and then certainly high output uh, stomas, so dumping. Those were reasons that they would um, do an early closure. Other problems are skin breakdown, prolapse, granulation, and then certain social issues um, that would uh, predispose to net- needing to get it done sooner. For example, for the term infants, um, doing it prior to discharge or coming back at a later date um, and being um, reconnected. And then vascular access. So, um, you know, difficulty yeah. of vascular access, which is what we're dealing with in our little little babies. Yes. So the <laughs> factors supporting delaying planned stoma closure um, are obviously pretty much the opposite. So babies who are thriving with the stoma, um, not having any dumping, um, did babies have comorbidities that put them um, at risk for going to surgery at that specified time? 
And then like we said, the underlying gut pathology. So less inflammation, they were able to wait a little bit longer. Um, And then um, unfortunately for this cohort, certainly the availability of going to the operating room specifically um, for COVID-19 limitations. Um, So, so much of our, even our research (laughs) is being affected by COVID-19. So even when they wanted to take babies to surgery, um, they were delayed because of of COVID-19 for a number of reasons. So um, I thought this was an interesting study. Again, it doesn't tell us when is the right time to do it, but at least tells us the reasons why um, some people prefer to do it early and some people prefer to do it later. What did you think? Right. I'm not sure. um, Maybe I I got this wrong, but it seems like this is part of a larger study called the the TOSKIN or TOSIN study, which stands for the timing of stomach closure in neonates. So. Is, I don't know if that means that there's this survey that's coming out now and that in the future, actually, this is just part of a larger study where they'll actually look at this in a more um, pragmatic way where it's not surveys, but they'll actually uh, right. do a, a, a formal trial. So that hopefully was my that's understanding. Good. So we'll Okay, we'll good. See. So then, um, so then, then good. So then I don't think I misunderstood. And, and it's interesting because um, I'm going to be honest here. I mean, I learned stomach closure timing based on my fellowship training, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you go through fellowship and you're like, all right, in my center, this is this is how what the surgeons and the attendings do it. And then you move to your, I mean, for me, I moved away from my fellowship training for my attending uh, job. And so then you get a different approach and you're like, wait, why are they not doing it now? Mm-hmm. Because the baby is dumping or the baby is not growing or something like that. And then what you realize with this paper is that there's really no consensus. And um, I guess we have to be tolerant of our colleagues and our surgeons uh, and not feel, sometimes I feel like, oh, this is the wrong thing. We should totally close this this stoma. But then you realize, no, it's very variable and there's no good evidence. So um, I think what's interesting though, is that it seems that even if the timing is not completely agreed upon, there's certain metrics that everybody looks at Mm -hmm. very closely, meaning a higher birth weight is is more uh, favorable, obviously, to tolerate surgery, to tolerate anesthesia mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And then obviously growth and dumping and all these things and access are more practical aspect where um, that might just shift your timeline. So I thought it was an interesting paper. Just to note, I was very happy to see that at the end of the, tw- uh, at the, end of the article, before the acknowledgement, they listed the Twitter handles of some of the authors. Um, and it's just giving you a glimpse as to the the community shifting yeah. a little bit to a more modern uh so that was cool i mean again the time, the when you think about what times are changing when you think about what michael right. narvi told us when he said that when he started on twitter his his superior said this is not something that you should do as a as a chair of neonatology whatever and now you're seeing this in articles clearly this is a nice contrast anyway very cool Absolutely. article. very cool um, um i you know i want to talk about this noise level in the ICU. Yeah. I'm, I, oh, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to, um, is it okay if I go over the, 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 the article and then you give us your thoughts? Sure. <laughs> okay. So, um, it's a very interesting article, um, because this is, a, okay, let me just, yeah, that's the reason why we have to pace ourselves because this is very cool. So this is published in children and it's called newborn incubators do not protect from high noise levels in the neonatal intensive care unit and are relevant noise sources by themselves. Mm-hmm. First author is Tenja Restin. And um, this is from um, a group based out of, um, dang it, I forgot where they're from. They're from, they're from uh, Switzerland. Switzerland. That's right, from Switzerland. And so what they did was very cool. So they basically used a an isolate in their unit and they placed a microphone in it and they measured noise levels and they tried various different scenarios, opening the doors, lifting the top, not doing anything, baseline noise levels, measuring noise levels based on other things happening in and around the unit, and basically looked at um, the diff- those different measurements. The, right, So the, the, the study was done in Zurich. And so all in all, in all it added up to um, 60 measurements that they did. And um, this was a giraffe omni bed, which is a very standard mm-hmm. bed in the unit. I guess the one thing I wanted to start off with was we're going to talk about uh, sound pressure levels and decibels and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to just clarify what are the numbers we need to have as reference points. Absolutely. And they're doing a good job in the background saying that uh, studies in the past have shown that preterm newborns may awake in reaction to sound pressure peaks equivalent to five to 10 decibels, right? Above background noise. And then they're quoting the American Association of Pediatrics, the AAP, 
that recommends to maintain weighted sound pressure levels below 45 decibels in neonatal intensive care units, right? So that's a good a good frame okay. of reference to then understand some of the numbers um, that they're going to describe. And if I, if I can, maybe for people who aren't Please. so familiar with that literature, so 40 decibels is like quiet library sounds, right? So th- less than that is like really whispering. Uh, a normal household refrigerator is about 50 decibels. Um, normal, our normal typical conversation is about 60 decibels. And you know, there's a lot of normal conversation happening in the NICU. And then 70 decibels is about a noisy restaurant. So just to give people some frame of reference really while you talk about that. Um, okay, so then let's just jump into into the results and see what some of the uh, different measurements they collected, right? Um, so um, the the inside the incubator, the sound uh, pressure levels um, when the incubator was just running was measured at thirty four point seven plus minus point five decibels when the incubator was switched off, and forty point five after the device completed its startup procedure. That's pretty impressive. And so just mm-hmm. the incubator running is already pretty significant. Um, and then they did some some spectral signature of the incubator, which was kind of cool. It made me feel like of this submarine movie that I saw where every <laughs> ship has a different signature, right? right. But they, they were able to do these things. And to be honest with you, I don't really understand how to read them. The one thing that's interesting, though, is that in the spectral signature, you can see when they turn the fan of the incubator off and you mm-hmm. see the huge drop in terms of uh, the amplitude um, of the of the of the noise level, so that's so that was kind of interesting. Um, when they're looking at the transfer of noise into the incubator, I thought that was very interesting. They're saying that opening and closing of the of one door added about thirty decibels, while the closing of one door while another one was open led to a fifteen decibel increase in sound pressure level. Um, opening the incubator on one side, as it is done for X-ray evaluations, evaluation, I'm sorry, causes an, an sound pressure level increase of 15 to 20 decibel, and closing it of 38 to 42 decibels, both uh, during less than 0.4 seconds. Um, they further found that the incubator water tank is an additional unexpected source of noise. Um, its closure causes a transient sound of approximately 0.3 second duration, with a sound pressure level exceeding, wait for it, 70 decibels. Mm-hmm. A noisy um, restaurant. And, <laughs> I know. Opening and closing the top causes sound peaks beyond 70 decibels for, for uh, approximately 0.5 seconds. Um, and then they looked at the environment of in and around the incubator. And so they found that the average weighted uh, sound pressure level during acoustic evaluation at the NICU measured next to the incubator was 53 decibels. During more than half of the whole measurement time at the NICU, it was above 45 decibels. During the recording at the NICU outside the incubator, we detected 194 occurrences of weighted SPL, sound pressure level, exceeding 65 decibel, most of which were of short duration, and attributed to the opening and closing of a cabinet and the entrance in, in and out mm-hmm. of the NICU. So... Uh, I, I'm going to let you. Um, I skipped to some of the some of their of their results because I wanted to focus on the on the main ones. But I think it's interesting, right, to have this new perspective of the baby, right, from from the incubator and from a noise level. I thought that was a very cool study. So go right ahead. Yeah. So so we know, we know this. I mean, we have lots of studies that show that NICUs are just too noisy. And we know that the incubators, while everybody thinks that they're kind of closed systems, um, are still too noisy. And in fact, there were some good studies that showed that when we do things inside the isolate, like our hands-on care, opening packages, that the incubators were actually amplifying the sound. Mm -hmm. And so I think we just, it just shows how cognizant we, we need to be about this. This was an interesting study because it showed really what does the incubator itself add to the equation? And I think it's terrifying to be perfectly honest, (laughs) Um, but that's not necessarily something we we can change, right? Hopefully, with newer iterations of of the giraffes and other beds, that that they'll get better, they'll get quieter. I also mm-hmm. realized that I don't know when the fan turns on in the incubator. I have no idea how often a fan runs, when it runs, mm-hmm. and and how that actually works. So that was something that gave me pause and how much time is spent doing that. And we know even this continual background noise is a concern, even for full-term infants. There's been some good studies about 
those of us who are using sound machines around the clock um, for our our newborns um, and uh, long-term hearing loss. So, you know, this is something that we have to take very carefully, especially for babies whose brains are, are really just developing. I think the takeaways are what can we do in our unit right now? So I can't necessarily change the bed that I have or how the bed works, but um, we can test our unit and you don't know this, but we've been testing our unit <laughs> about the noise levels. And our, our unit is very noisy. Um, it's mm-hmm. an older unit. Um, the It's a single bay unit. Um, so the nurses are frequently chatting together in, in the center. They don't, they don't have another place uh, to move and have their discussions. Um, and in the evening time, when we have thankfully lots of families coming, I mean, it gets noisy. Even for myself and as an adult, I sometimes feel like, it's so noisy in here. So you can right. only imagine what's what's happening to the babies. So um, we can measure the units. We can find out what where are the noisiest parts in our units. Can we put the highest risk babies in the quietest places? Um, we can educate the staff. So you have to tell them that like, by the way, it's just too loud in here. Here's the studies. Here's what we know. Here are the things that we do every single day for babies. Open the isolate. Um, do we have to put the side down or can we just use the portholes? Do we have to open the bed all the way or can we do some of our care um, without increasing increasing the noise. Something that I found in our in our unit, and this was new for us, right? Because we had previously been in places where the doctors worked in a separate workspace. And now we work right in the unit. So I think more than ever we're noticing just how how noisy it it is in our in our practice. But the alarms, so there's some babies who are always alarming low, right? So those are the babies we really need to know about. But what I found in our unit is we have a lot of babies who are alarming high. They're in 21% and their uh, their upper alarm limit is 100. But we right. can we can stop that, right? So those babies are doing okay. You know, we have a lower alarm limit. We can't change anything. We can't wean the oxygen. So why do we have to let them alarm all day long? So I think those are things that we can, everybody can institute in their units uh, today. Obviously, we can specialize places for staff to congregate and talk. And then the next step is really there's so much kind of noxious auditory stimulation. How can we encourage positive auditory stimulation? So if your unit's doing a lot of kangaroo care, that's awesome. Maybe the next step is for the right babies who are a little bit older, starting to encourage humming, soft singing, reading to babies. So there are ways that we can dilute some of this harmful stimulus. So obviously I dug the paper. I hope our listeners go. You can get a decibel meter on your phone for free. You can download an app so you can start checking today. When I was, when I was in medical school, we had a music therapist that would come Uh to the NICU and, and whenever she started playing uh, the guitar with, with those sort of slow and Mm -hmm. quiet uh, sounds, everybody would go quiet. Everybody, everybody everybody, right? Myself included. Um, So you got quiet. (laughs) <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay. So um, let's move on because we're running out of time and I'm not appreciating these little <laughs> comments of yours. <laughs> My jazz. Uh, okay. So the, the paper I liked, I like that paper on uh, cardiac performance and breast milk. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's magical. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go over it or should you want me to just run through? The no, I, I can do this one. So um, again, this is another paper with a, a, a lot of data and we still have a few other papers to get through, but um, this was a paper um, in uh, JAMA. Um, so it's entitled cardiac performance in the first year of age among preterm infants fed maternal breast milk. Um, the lead author, Afif L. Kufash. Kufash. That's right. Who's a Twitter friend of ours. Mm-hmm. So um, basically what they did is they uh, looked at this cross-sectional study um, of cardiac and nutritional data um, at an academic medical center. Um, and this specific cross-section, um, they looked at 80 um, preterm babies and 100 uh, full-term control babies. And these babies were all born between 2011 and 2013. And they looked at their 2D echoes. They looked at them at 32 weeks, at 36 weeks, and then at a year-corrected age, um, both in preterm infants um, and then their their full-term 
uh, cohort. So the full-term cohort got it at one month of age and at one year of age. And so what they wanted to look at uh, were all of the echocardiograph uh, kind of measurements of right and left ventricular strain, uh, left ventricular mass, and right ventricular um, area. So, so basically what they, what we know about preterm babies is they have decreased cardiac parameters, um, even at mm-hmm. one year of age. And so I, I thought that was a really nice review that they put in, um, their introduction, um, and throughout the paper. So I would recommend everybody can take a look at that just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is also part of a bigger study, um, called the Prematurity and Respiratory Outcomes Program or the PROP uh, study uh, through WashU um, and St. Louis Children's Hospital. So we're going to get a lot more data um, from this cohort. Um, but so they that whole cohort has almost 700 babies. And then I told you we have a much uh, smaller cross-sectional cohort. So um, interestingly, they looked at the a lot of the anthropometric data. They looked at daily weights. They looked at lengths. Um, and then they looked at their daily milk consumption of mom's own milk, uh, donor human milk, and uh, bovine formula. Um, obviously, there are babies who get mixtures. And so they did talk about that. Um, but let's go ahead to uh, the data that they did get. So the preterm cohorts, just so everybody knows, had a median birth weight of about 960 grams, gestational age of 27 uh, weeks at a median, um, almost exactly split split female to to male. Um, They did have a number of uh, obviously maternal complications that are pretty similar for all of our preterm cohorts. Um, And then again, they looked at um, what were the postnatal complications. So they had 61% of babies, um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Um, Let's see, neck 15%, ROP 36%, um, and IVH 20%. So I will say this is a This is a high acuity group, I think Mm -hmm. we could say. Um, But then they looked at the the echo data, and they were particularly interested in what happened at one year uh, corrected age. So um, what they were able to do is really make these beautiful graph curves, which I I hope um, we'll plan to post. Um, But Mm -hmm. they looked at the um, left ventricular performance. So for each additional week of mom's own milk exposure, there was enhanced left ventricular function. Um, There was, uh, they measured the left ventricular longitudinal strain. Um, They looked at the wall thickness. So it was decreased with each additional week of mom's own milk. Um, And uh, then they looked at the right ventricular performance. So again, at one year, they looked at each additional week of mom's own milk exposure. There was enhanced right ventricular function, enhanced right ventricular strain, um, larger right ventricular cavity dimensions, and larger systolic and diastolic areas. Then they subsequently looked at the pulmonary hemodynamics, which I thought were particularly interesting. So again, at one year, each additional week of mom's own milk exposure, there was decreased right ventricular afterload, increased coupling of the right ventricular to its uh, afterload. Um, And so basically all of the cardiac um, parameters uh, were improved in the babies who got mom's own milk and it was dose dependent. Um, so the, the longer you got milk for, um, the better your cardiac um, outcomes were. They also looked at a subgroup um, of the cohort looking at the donor human milk exposure. Um, and so interestingly, there was not a significant impact of exposure to donor human milk uh, on the cardiac performance at, at one year. Um, and so I thought that was interesting also. Now, obviously we know breast milk is, is magical. I, I would not have even thought to, to study this, honestly. Obviously my area of interest is not in, in cardiac physiology, but still um, this, this association uh, I thought was uh, unanticipated. Um, no, that's true. And, and it's, it goes back to something we've said in the past on the podcast, which was if, if this was not saying breast milk, but said a random medication mm-hmm. suddenly implemented in your unit. So it, it's, it's fascinating. 
I think um, in the um, when it comes to donor milk, I think they did a multivariate analysis at the end, and they showed that DHM donor human milk exposure um, that each additional week of DHM exposure um, there were increased measures of right ventricular function and morphology even after adjustment for gestational age, but they didn't find. Um, there was no difference in the measurements of left ventricular function or morphology, RV afterload, or RV coupling, as mm -hmm. you said. So it was even in donor milk, they had some benefits, even mm -hmm. if, if it was not completely encompassing of the full cardiac function. It's an interesting association, right? I mean, uh, Afif in the paper in the introduction mentions that there's nothing that has tried to link the mm -hmm. two. And so they're making this attempt without really potentially understanding the theoretical basis for this. Right. Um but just the fact that we're able to see this clear association is quite interesting, right? And uh, the benefits of human milk, the list keeps getting Growing. longer and longer. So that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Um, no, I don't have anything else to, to add. This is, this is a fascinating paper. We'll post those, those, um, we will post those, uh, those graphs. And then looking forward to seeing the, the larger cohort, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, which, uh, which other paper do you want to go to next? Well, I think given our previous uh, interview that we have to talk about this paper in Journal of Perinatology about um, infant follow-up. So, go for it. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it was, uh, it's called Race, Language, and Neighborhood Predict High-Risk Preterm Infant Follow-Up Program Participation. Uh, lead author, uh, Yarden uh, Freeman. And so uh, I thought this is, just uh, so serendipitous that this came to us because I think this is exactly what um, Dr. Montoya Williams was talking about last week. Um, so definitely, if you didn't get the chance, take take a listen. Um, but basically, what they looked at is they have an, an infant follow up program, which obviously helps to provide developmental surveillance for preterm infants after ho hospital discharge. And then they wanted to see what what were kind of the barriers or what would be the factors that um, decreased that participation in that program, because unfortunately, the participation was very variable. And I think a lot of us see this in our follow-up programs. Um, so they looked at race, uh, they looked at um, English as a first language, and then they looked at something called um, the Child Opportunity Index. And so briefly, what that means is it measures and maps the conditions children need, safe housing, good schools, access to healthy food, green spaces, and clean air, among another a bunch of other factors. And so we know that these conditions are not equitably available to all children in the United States. And certainly um, minority children, Black, Hispanic, Indigenous children, um, disproportionately live in neighborhoods that um, don't provide all of those optimal conditions. And though those uh, neighborhoods are listed as a low child oppor opportunity index. And those and that was interesting because it, it, they said that it was like um, publicly available census data. Yes. And so interestingly, uh, everybody can look at their own communities. Uh, you can go to diversitydatakids.org um, and they have a map of the entire country um, to look at and mapped by the Child Opportunity Index to look at what does your community look like. Um, and I think some people will be surprised, even if your facility has great resources, you may still be in a community that once the babies leave have very low resources. And so it's important to know um, what kind of system you're, you're functioning in. So I'll get back to the study, but I thought that was very interesting. And again, something everybody can do today is find out about um, what your child opportunity index in your community looks like. So they looked at 477 infants who were eligible um, for follow-up um, at this uh, level three NICU. And so then they looked at just what was the primary outcome, which is pretty much the, the lowest threshold, right? Did ba Were babies seen in one visit to their um, follow-up clinic? And then they looked at the um, factors associated with participation. So of the 477 infants, 41%, uh, so less than half, participated in their outpatient follow-up. Um, the mean gestation age for this uh, group were 29 weeks, mean birth weight 1.2 uh, kilos, 20% with IVH, 13% with BPD, home oxygen in 17%, in and G-tubes in 2%. So, you know, these were babies who 
uh, were, you know, moderately sick, still having quite, quite a lot of needs. And so when I think about my experiences, I think in general, those are the babies who are most likely to come to the follow-up mm-hmm. clinic. Mm-hmm. Those are also the babies who have a lot of other appointments, but um, we can discuss that afterwards. And so what they found um, was that the babies who um, were uh, black compared to white race um, had lower participation. Um, Non-English speakers um, had lower participation. And then as they hypothesized, those families in the very low childhood opportunity index communities um, had lower participation. And so, I mean, my takeaway from this is, one, I hadn't I didn't know about the Childhood Opportunity Index. I took a look uh, to look at our community, um, and I think that uh, will give me some information moving forward. Um, and, and so basically, the data panned out exactly what their hypothesis was, but it just goes to show you that we can identify families that are higher risk for not having the resources post-discharge, um, and then that, that's really where our intervention should be, is, is how can we optimize some of those resources um, for families? Yeah, I think your the Kauai of your neighborhood and mine is identical. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it was an interesting paper. Number one, because of what you said at the on the front end, that it really ties in super nicely with what um, Diana spoke to us about and how the data can can really uncover these types of disparities. I was interested in something in the discussion that they mentioned that I was thinking could they could it be related to distance to the mm-hmm. actual follow up place? But yes. they looked at that and it was independent of distance, meaning even if the people lived in the, to, uh, that's lived right as far as each other, it didn't make a difference. Um, and I thought, I guess. Um, there's nothing else for me to add on to what you say, except that maybe when they spoke about like for for people with um, coming from from lower Kauai sort of uh, neighborhoods, um, what what increased their particip- participations were having like NICU comorbidity, mm-hmm. needing like medical equipment at discharge, or um, and so I thought it's it's a it's a crying shame that parents need to be so far on the end of the spectrum where their kids are so so sick that it that's all that's that's what it takes mm-hmm. um for them to actually come by themselves to the follow up programs we should really emphasize it means that we're not doing maybe such a good job at emphasizing all the other ramifications of uh, the importance of these follow up programs for babies who don't need so much medical support right um so i thought that was interesting as well is because it seems like from a sensitivity standpoint Right now, we're not doing a good job, and the baby really needs to be really, really sick for for compliance sort of to be uh, effectuated. So we need to do a better job at at helping our families. And this is exactly the highlight that we posted on our Twitter account from Diana's interview. Right? It's it doesn't matter all the work you do in the NICU if after they leave, then it's just they're into the ether and nobody follows up after them. Right? I mean, all the work goes to waste sometimes, and so. It's important. Yeah. And I, what I would have liked to have seen in this study, and I think will help all of us is, um, you know, a lot of these parents probably wanted to come, right. And they just mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't because of, right. um, the, the stressors that they have in their lives. And so really, uh, and again, that's going to be different. That's what she taught us. It's going to be different for every community. Um, and so we have to know what is, what are the barriers in our own NICU in our own cities? Mm-hmm. So that's, right. that's something we can work on. For sure. That's right. Uh, I think we have to talk about these PDA papers, right? Sure. Let's talk. I mean, we can never, talk about this never one. Never a podcast without a, a paper about PDAs. So this is a paper published in the Journal of Perinatology. It's from a, from a study group out of Canada, Toronto specifically, and it's called Is Late Treatment with Acetaminophen Safe and Effective in Avoiding Surgical Ligation Among Extremely Preterm Neonates with Persistent Patent Ductus Arteriosus? First author is Sally Michali, and um, as we said, from Toronto. <laughs> so the objective of their study was to um, evaluate this, the association between a late treatment with acetaminophen versus immediate surgical ligation um, with death or neurodevelopmental impairment among extremely low gestational age neonate LGANs with persistent PDA. The way this works is that their center gets mm-hmm. a lot of referral for babies with uh, needing PDA closures. And so they divided their study into two epochs. They had uh, 2009 to 2012. This was epoch one. And during that time, basically, um, every baby that was referred to them underwent surgical ligation because that's why they were referred for. 
Now, in Epoch 2, uh, which spans 2012 to 2015, um, babies were um, tried with oral acetaminophen um, and or referred to ligation, right, uh, in the absence of improvement. And so they wanted to see, um, in terms of the babies who underwent treatment with, uh, with Tylenol, if, if they had less, uh, that was their primary outcome, really, uh, a composite of death or no developmental impairment at 18 to 24 months, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so you should look at figure one because yeah. it's a little bit tricky. Um, the, the, reason why it's, the reason why it's tricky is because it's a retrospective comparative EPO cohort study, right? So, I mean, it's... it's they can't control for a lot of the stuff that actually happened. Right. Um, and that's where I think the study is suffering from its own design because you wish that they could have control. So for example, um, in Epoch 1, they had 468 babies and then 43 of those were referred for immediate ligation. 31 got ligated, 12 did not because either they died prior to surgery or because the PDA already had closed by that time mm -hmm. and um, or clinically they were doing better. But then in Epoch 2, they had 49 babies who were referred for advanced, I guess, management of their PDA, mm -hmm. um, nine of which got ligated. 40 of them received, were put in the acetaminophen group. And in that group, basically what ended up happening is that um, 19 of them ended up needing ligation and 21 ended up mm -hmm. not needing ligation. Um, so let's look at their, at, their, um, at their outcome. They said, so they had... The, the, the summary of the results is that 92 uh, LGANs with a median gestational age of 25.2 weeks had a patent PDA um, at the time of EPOC-1 and EPOC-2. With acetaminophen exposed neonates receiving about seven days of treatment, that's also very important, I mm -hmm. guess. The treatment, the treatment modality was oral acetaminophen administered for seven days at a, at a dose of 15 milligrams per kilo, Q6 hours. Um, and so... Uh, LGANs in EPOC-2 had a reduced ligation with an adjusted OR of 0.3. And that was basically, um, uh, the per in percentage-wise, it was 53% versus 72% mm -hmm. needing ligation. But there was no difference in death slash NDI. Um, and so their conclusion is that late treatment with acetaminophen to avoid surgery for PDA is associated with reduced ligation, but no difference um, down the road. Um, it it's a, it's an interesting study, right? I mean, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, if you could avoid having to put a baby through a ligation, I guess that's that's valuable. The question is, um, we're still struggling, right, with with the concept of leaving the PDAs open, right? And we we spoke right. about that in that pediatric study from a few weeks back, where those PDAs can remain open, and what is the long term cardiopulmonary mm -hmm. sort of consequences of that? So that I don't know. Um, I guess what I'm taking away from this study is that. Um, I used to think that a late mm -hmm. treatment with acetaminophen was almost a waste of time, right? It's like, oh, they're so old, it's not going to work. It's a Hail well, Mary. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But then it shows that because some of their PDAs actually have closed, it's worth trying, right? For seven days, it's an insignificant, in my opinion, amount of time where you could potentially save a baby a procedure that has significant morbidity associated with it. Um so, um, so yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. That, those are the questions, right? Does acetaminophen work and does it matter? <laughs> and, you know, I don't think anybody can, can answer the question yet. Does it matter? But in, in the PDAs that we decide to close, um, it looks like acetaminophen works at least 50% of the time, um, even, even late. And we actually experienced that recently in two, in two babies that we had that had failed, um, ibuprofen therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, definitely, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Obviously, there are um, programs looking at um, acetaminophen as the primary uh, medication. So maybe mm -hmm. we'll be looking at, at more of that. But um, it, lots of people say, I don't, even, I don't think Tylenol works at all. But um, I, I think this shows that it does. It can. So I agree. It right. was a, it was a, there was a lot going on in the study. Um, they, they had a prophylactic indomethacin use in some of the babies. Uh, what else I will say about the Tylenol uh, treated group is that those babies tended to be less sick. Um, they had lower days of invasive mechanical ventilation at enrollment. Um, their first treatments um, for PDA management um, tended to be later. 
than the the not Tylenol groups. So the groups were a little different at, at baseline. But the yeah. question is, if we give acetaminophen, does it reduce uh, ligations? And it, it did by 50%. Yep. So interesting. Um, okay. Uh, we're coming to the end of the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the last paper we can talk about, there's some other papers that we can potentially save for next time. We say that every week. It's fine. That's right. Um, but it's a it's a good tie-in also with the, the guest that we'll have next week. So Eric Jensen spoke to us about this, obviously, that he likes to challenge the, the dogma. And so he has a paper that he first authored in the Journal of Perinatology this month called, Is it time to study routine car seat tolerance screening in a randomized control trial? Question mark. An international survey of current practice and clinician equipoise. How do you pronounce equipoise? You got it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You nailed it. Good. Um, <laughs> so um in the introduction obviously um eric mentions that there's not much evidence regarding um the need and the uh the the, the benefits of doing um pre-discharge car seat screening tolerance test on on preterm babies and so he went to hot topics the the annual conference in the u.s and started surveying um neonatologists and 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 participants about what their thoughts are on the pre-discharge car seat testing so um, I think there was 1,300 registered conference attendees, and he was able to get about 39% of them to return a survey, um, 87% of which were physician. Um, so, um, um, and then of those physicians, 70% practiced in the U.S. and uh, 99% had provided intensive care to preterm infants. Uh, they were coming from 28 countries and six continents, so that's really exciting because mm-hmm. that will end up playing a role in in sort of how we looked at the at the results. So the results were as follows: the majority of respondents, 75%, indicated that pre-discharge CAR C testing is routinely performed in preterm infants at their institution. So far, I'm in that category. <laughs> most uh, most 66% believe that CAR C testing is medically necessary, um, and I guess. I feel, I guess, the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, routine performance of car seat tests was more common among U.S.-based than non-U.S.-based respondents, uh, 96% versus 23%, as was belief that car seat testing is medically necessary, 72 versus 51%. Among those practicing in Canada, 14% believe car seat testing is medically necessary, and 19% reported routine performance of car seat testing in preterm infants. So... Um, what was interesting is that a minority of respondents, 42%, had equipoise, so the, the, had willingness to conduct okay. a trial, right? Um, and conversely, 75% indicated willingness in trial number two. So basically what they did is that they offered them two types of trial. And I thought that was very interesting mm-hmm. because we'll put these pictures on Twitter and you can feel like, wh- where do you land? So the first trial that he offered them was saying half randomized to car seat and half randomized to discharge home without car seat. So you'll let half of your patient go home without a car mm-hmm. seat test. And in the full cohort, like the people who said no to that was about 60%. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, I'm not letting half of my patients go home without a car seat. <laughs> um, and when he looked, um, and then in the trial number two, which said, okay, all participants go through car seat testing, randomize one-to-one to either a restrictive or a permissive criteria, which is like, how do we define a failed car seat test versus a past car seat test? And, and we're coming at the end of the hour. We'll put these numbers in. So like, if there's an episode, like, would we consider positive if it was 10 seconds, 11 to 15? And so he has different criteria. And for that, people were much more amenable mm-hmm. to it. So I think about 70% said they would be more more okay with, with that type of trial. Um, and so these survey, the discussion starts off by saying that the survey data suggests that routine pre-discharge car seat testing in preterm infant is common in the U.S. and generally believed to be medically necessary among U.S.-based practitioners. In contrast, less than one quarter of respondents who practice outside the U.S. indicated car seat testing is routinely performed in their institution and only one half felt it was medically necessary. And so what, what are your thoughts? I want to tell you a story about car seat testing after, before we close the show. But I mean, what were your thoughts on this paper? Yeah, I think, well, you talked a little bit about how the data was different depending on where respondents came from. And so, I mean, I think that probably has something to do, one, with um, what does your system look like for, for outpatient care and uh, unfortunately, what is like malpractice and litigation look like in, in your country? Um, because we don't have the data, right? But, it, you know, it feels like sometimes once something is in there, you just 
You can't take away something that feels like a little bit of a safety net. And we've all had that experience. There are babies that um, fail the car seat and there are babies who fail the car seat a lot like many times. Um, so yeah. I, I think that's interesting. I think it's an interesting study um, plan to to see what do we do. I'm, I'm not surprised that there was more equipoise for number two, where everybody's still getting a car seat test, but can we that's be, right. can we be a little bit more lenient um, with, with the parameters? And it begs the question, you know, I hope he'll do it with some full term controls because I don't, I've not seen that study and I looked and <laughs> what happens to babies in car seats? Maybe, maybe right. it happens all the time, um, even right. in healthy babies. Um, so that was interesting. And then the other thing that they did uh, get some survey data on was um, what are people doing after the car seat uh, failure? Um, so th- that was <laughs> a, a range it. also. So what is the most appropriate next step after car seat test failure? Uh, I mean, 80% was, we'll repeat the car seat test. Um, but, you know, there are other places where you, well, we discharge home anyways. So it says, so. Yeah, it's like 10, 10% or 20% was like, yeah, it's still discharge. We'll just- <laughs> and where I trained, we were discharging any failure home in the in a car bed, um, which in many communities is, is not is not available. Mm-hmm. And then how soon after car seat test failure should screening be repeated? And so this was a little bit of range, but 60% says 24 hours. And right. that's what we do in our unit. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't talked about it, but that's just what we do. <laughs> right. So um, very, very interesting. So we'll see what comes of it when the other yeah, so, studies roll out. But tell me your story. So this, my story is that I did a portion of my training in Israel where um, the hospital I trained at was at the entrance of the desert. So we had a, a significant number, a significant proportion of our population was Bedouin. And um, the Bedouin population lives in the desert. They're nomads and they live in tents and they, they, they move on donkeys and camels and stuff like mm. that. Um, and it's very cool. A lot of car very seats cool. then. But it, that's the funny thing. The hospital, when they came to deliver at the hospital, sure. um, we mandated a car seat test. And they were like, I don't have a car seat test. Like, I came on a donkey and I'm going to go home on a donkey. Yeah, a and the hospital and the administrator were like, we cannot let you go home without a car seat. So they had to go and get a car seat to get car seat tested. And then you would see that I have, I think I have this picture somewhere at home where you would see people like leaving the hospital, mom, dad, the baby on a donkey holding, the car holding a car seat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh and God. so and so it, it it goes back to this paper about what is the necessity um depending on the situation yeah it's a good question to ask <laughs> anyway and so. and the stressors we put parents through in the final days of discharge oh, absolutely the when- poor, i felt so bad that like the, the hospital was very inflexible about like no 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 you, you gotta gotta do the car seat you gotta do the car seat we gotta like, oh, check like, that box don't we that's right that's right anyway um, thank you, Daphne. That was a fun journal club. Yeah, what I what I uh, I learned a lot today. I also learned that our journal article titles are getting longer <laughs> as time goes on. <laughs> yeah, I think people are just uh, not looking. I mean, if it's funny when you read the literature like from from way back when, like early 20th century, they had zingers like oh, the, yeah. the titles. The, yeah, they took a lot of liberty, and and I kind of miss that, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. All right, Daphne. Well, see you next time. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.